and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today we're thrilled to be talking to Michał Kroszynski. Michał is Professor of Psychology and Associate Professor of Psychology at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he studies humans in a digital environment using computational methods, AI, and big data, looking at all the digital footprints that we leave. Michal, I should also say, was behind the very first press article warning about the threat of Cambridge Analytica. And today we're going to be talking about two pieces of research he's just completed that ask even more probing questions about privacy in today's world. Michal, great to be talking to you. Tori, thanks for having me. Can I ask you just to give us a brief overview of these two pieces of research that you've done for us then to start digging in a little bit deeper. One, that um, the openly available algorithms are able to predict sexuality at a degree of precision, which I think in some instances comes close to the precision that AI can find cancers in mammograms, one of the oldest and most, most, sort of most accurate uses of AI. And two, that these same algorithms are able to predict political orientation to a much higher degree than humans can. So being educated as a, in, in a kind of a classical uh, psychology school, I, uh, I was convinced that faces should not be linked with intimate traits. And uh, so this is why I, w- I was treating those, uh, those patterns with quite some skepticism. But then, while I started working on my research, I realized that uh, psychology provides us with quite a few uh, different mechanisms that should, in fact, be responsible for the existence of links between facial features and intimate traits, such as political views or uh, personality. And those mechanisms come in three uh, sets. One set encompasses mechanisms that essentially uh, where our mind influences our faces, influences our faces. And a few examples here. For example, uh, if you are a liberal person, politically liberal person, so this is property of your mind, uh, this will affect your choices of community and uh, and friend groups that you're hanging out with. It will uh, influence activities that you engage in. It will influence fashion choices. Fashion choices also pertaining to how you shave yourself, what makeup you're using, what hairstyle you're using, and so on. So this is just one example of how your property of your mind, political liberalism, will affect properties of your face, uh, such as hairstyle, and so on. Now, there's a second set of mechanisms where your face affects your mind. And one of the examples here is physical attractiveness. People with attractive faces receive more eye contact from their moms, you know, as infants, than 
they are more successful typically in the educational system. They get better grades. They later receive better salaries. They get promoted more easily. They get invited to parties uh, more easily than people that are not likely to have attractive faces. They get voted for uh, in uh, political elections with higher likelihood. And of course, this kind of in, uh, increased popularity and uh, better outcomes that attractive faces to some extent facilitate are going over the lifetime to affect people's minds. If you have a higher salary, if you have a better job, if people like you more, uh, you will be, uh, uh, and there's actually evidence showing that uh, people with more attractive faces become more extroverted with time, more social, because simply they receive a lot of positive feedback whenever they interact uh, with others. And then there is a third group of mechanisms. Those mechanisms encompass factors that affect both people's faces and uh, people's uh, minds. People's minds. Uh, those include genes. We know that facial appearance is heritable, but we also know that political orientation, personality, intelligence, and many other psychological uh, factors are to significant extent heritable. Hormones affect our facial affect our facial appearance. Hairline distribution of collagen or uh, facial hair is affected by testosterone, and we also very well know that testosterone is going to affect is affecting our behavior, social dominance, uh, levels of aggression, and so on. So now uh, it is actually it became it was surprising to me to realize that I got educated to learn. I learned about all of those mechanisms. And yet I never connected the dots to realize that, hey, you know, if um, we are right about uh, those mechanisms, it should imply that faces should be linked with, uh, with uh, psychological traits. And yet it was treated as uh, just a completely crazy idea in my, in my field. So uh, this is why both my colleagues in the field and myself were pretty surprised with these findings. There's a hint, of course, of, to put it kindly, phrenology, that old 19th century science of measuring people's faces and working out whether they were naturally predisposed towards criminality. Um, and, uh, and to put it less nicely, sort of, of there's, a, there's, a, there's a stench of Mengele <laughs> around this as well. And of course, one of the areas of your concern here, which you flag all, all, all through your work, is precisely how this facial recognition technology now that it's been understood to be based in science in these three areas that you've just described, could potentially be used for political uh, or social purposes. Look, I fully agree. And this is why uh, I was so concerned to discover that those technologies have been developed and are being used. The main problem with phrenology and related pseudoscientific uh, disciplines is that we should just not be making judgments about people based on their faces, regardless of whether those judgments are accurate or not. It just doesn't matter whether the judgment is accurate or not. We should just not be doing it. Now, the fact, the very unpleasant and uncomfortable fact that those judgments are actually, to some extent, accurate. And I should stress here, they're accurate when made by AI, not by humans. We actually have a lot of evidence that humans are better than random when judging people's political orientation, personality, uh, sexual orientation, and other intimate traits from their faces. But people's accuracy 
is so close to random. It's better than random, but so close to random that it's just luckily impractical. Luckily, we cannot just judge someone's political views that easily from their face. Now, sadly, it turns out that AI can do this with uh, very significant, very remarkable accuracy. And now, because, as I said before, people's traits should not be judged based on their faces. That's not how we should go about things. The fact that technology can do it somewhat accurately and the fact that people seem to be using this technology to do, to do exactly that, as one can very easily find in press or in patents that are published you know, online publicly, uh, and that's, those are reasons to be pretty worried about that. So just jumping into both these studies, we'll link to both in the show notes. In terms of facial recognition algorithms capacity to, to, to determine sexual orientation, you found that um, it was somewhere between 80 and 90% accurate in men and 70 to 85% accurate for women, which is radically better than the human equivalent, which I think you said me- people are able to determine the sexuality of men, 61% accurate at you, which is just a little bit better than random. And, um, and almost not able to determine the sexual uh, sexuality of, of women at all. So there's a big, big difference there. What was it based on? So first, a little side note on how accuracy is calculated. Uh, so, of course, given that on average, uh, gay uh, population is about 7%, 6 to 7% of the entire population, on average, if you just said, hey, everyone is straight, you would have around 93% accuracy, right? So in order to avoid, uh, uh, to kind of overcome uh, this problem, uh, the accuracy in studies like that is usually um, presented as what we call area under the curve uh, coefficient. And this area is, uh, this, this coefficient is an equivalent of estimating accuracy in the following situation, where you take one gay and one straight individual you show them to a judge, a human judge or a computer judge, a decision maker, and then measure or count how many times judge made the correct decision. And in this way, you kind of overcome the issue of the uh, fractions in the population being imbalanced and the fact that, you know, different populations are studied in different, in different uh, studies. So now bringing it to this one kind of oversimplified coefficient allows you to compare accuracy across many different scenarios and many different studies. So yes, the accuracy in our study was about 90%, 90% plus when algorithm was presented with uh, five images of a person, around 80 plus percent when it was presented just with one image uh, of a person. And I need to stress that this algorithm has not been trained to predict sexual orientation. We are talking about off the shelf facial recognition algorithm that you have built in, that is built in in your phone and is built in in uh, Facebook and Instagram's algorithms of detecting faces. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to go and train a specific algorithm trained to predict people's political orientation or sexual orientation because the whole point of my research is those algorithms are worrying and they should not be used. But I believe that if someone uh, trained an algorithm specifically to do that, and again, from what we know from patents and press uh, reports, it seems that people are doing this. The accuracy of those algorithm, algorithms is probably higher than whatever you know I found and and shown in my uh, kind of studies auditing uh, 
and this technology. So to go back to your original question about what is actually giving the signal, uh, well, we don't know exactly because those algorithms making those distinctions are so-called black box algorithms. So they would make a decision and you can measure the accuracy of this decision very easily, but they will. it's very difficult to understand how this decision is made. You can, of course, look under the hood at the algorithm. Algorithm is just, it's just math. So you can just check you know, how the equation works. The problem is that this equation is has millions of coefficients that you know all change depending on what phase they are looking at and so on. And it's just extreme. And those coefficients are not interpretable. It's not that there's some coefficient that is responsible for you know width of height of the phase. So in order to try to see what might be giving signal, we are as humans in general when we interact with those black box algorithms, we are kind of reduced to trying to search for some um, hints there in the data. So in the context of this particular study, we looked at average faces. When we looked at average faces of gay and straight people, we, looked, we tried to compare the shape um, of the outlines of facial features, such as jaw and so on. Uh, we tried to look at different adornments that people wear, such as glasses or, uh, or um, jewelry on their faces and so on, and try to identify, you may say manually, uh, kind of the differences, and then uh, kind of test whether those were the differences that the computer was using in, in, in its predictions. And it turns out that shape of the face, so the shape of the jaw differed between gay and straight uh, populations, and computer was judging the shape uh, and the shape of the was using shape of the jaw as as uh, as source of signal now does that mean that gay and straight people have differently shaped faces well we don't know because we're using pictures that people take have taken on themselves and uploaded to uh, social media and dating websites and of course when people take pictures of themselves they hold camera at a different angle and different distance from the from the face, which of course affects the shape of uh, facial uh, features. Uh, so, but at the end of the day, that doesn't matter from the point of view of the prediction, right? Uh, still, whether the difference in shape of your jaw stems from uh, how you keep hold the camera or whether it stems from what your shape, what your real shape of the jaw is, at the end of the day computer can still employ the signal to make a very accurate prediction. Nihao, that's extremely carefully navigated, um, and it's a tricky, shark-infested, these are tricky, shark-infested waters. Um, can I ask you to do, in exactly the same way, the same sort of analysis on what you discovered around political orientation? With political orientation, actually, the issue is even more difficult as we analyzed dozens of different factors stemming from expression. And it seems that conservatives seem to be smiling a little bit more. And liberals are 1% more likely to be wearing glasses, right? So there's, uh, there's some difference also in facial hair that there's a slightly that conservatives were slightly less likely to wear, to have essentially have a beard on a social media uh, picture. But now those differences are tiny, literally, you know, one or two percent or three percent maybe difference between conservatives and liberals. So 
Uh, and even all combined, when you combine all of those interpretable features that we looked at, the orientation of the face, whether you look down or up or left or right, uh, whether you're wearing sunglasses, whether you're wearing beard, what facial expression you adopted. So essentially extracted a bunch of interpretable facial cues. If you combine all of them together, the prediction accuracy would be around 60%. Uh, now, if you use a black box approach that doesn't look at those explicit features, but just takes the face as it is and extracts some features that are not fully, uh, then, well, we, we cannot, we have no way of fully understanding that accuracy suddenly goes from 60% to 70 plus uh, percent. And I should mention, by the way, that of course, features such as gender, age, ethnicity, also are related to political orientation, enable predicting political orientation, but have controlled for those in this study, right? So we, the accuracy that we're discussing here uh, has been, was computed while controlling for age, gender, ethnicity. So the kind of obvious giveaways of, um, of political orientation. So um, in light of your first point, that physiognomy and, and, and psychology physiognomy and sexuality, physiognomy and political orientation are, are associated in those three ways that you flagged initially. Your face impacts your politics, your politics impacts your face, um, and there's a whole bunch of inherited genetic um, information which is being passed through too. In oh, not only genetic, there's, there's also, there's also, there are also hormones. There's also environment where you grew up. Environment where you grow up in affects what your face looks like. Think about growing up in a city and being close in an apartment most of the time versus growing up in the countryside and having access to you know wonderful outdoors activities uh, and essentially being exposed to different amounts of sun, uh, sunlight. Uh, so again, growing up in different community will shape your political orientation, but will also shape uh, your facial appearance. Uh, there's affluence, you know, wealthy people use very different products to um, uh, put on their face. Uh, they also groom uh, in different ways. They are engaged in different activities. Uh, so wealth will affect your facial appearance. And of course, we very well understand that privilege and wealth affect also your psychological traits. They shape your psychological traits, traits over a long time. So there's an enormous amount of environmental material here which goes in, but I still want to ask you the sort of a, the 101, perhaps sledgehammer, perhaps banal question, which is that if literally our sexuality and our political orientation is written on our faces. I remember as a child being told, you've got guilty written across your face whenever I did something <laughs> wrong. Um, but if literally our sexuality and our political orientation is written in our faces, what does that tell us about opinions and the immutability of opinions, the immutability of sexuality? Does this, having done this research, having looked as carefully as you have here, do you wonder um, whether actually we are how fixed our personalities are? Well, there are much better ways of studying this issue and answering this question. Like, for example, looking at the genes and genetic uh, and the fraction of variants in your political orientation, personality, and other psychological traits that are explained by a genetic factor. And you can study it very carefully using twin studies, uh, adoption studies where twins, identical twins, uh, um, we hope, hopefully uh, that's happening as rarely as possible, but there have been uh, situations where identical twins have been adopted uh, by uh, two different families. And then you can study how 
their political views or their personality or intelligence and other traits, how they are related. You can calculate differences between identical twins and non-identical non-identical twins or just siblings. Uh, so essentially, there's just much better study designs that can teach us about those kind of permanent permanent elements in our traits. You can look at stability of personality over lifetime. You can just see, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence showing that uh, while a conscientious, well-organized kid, even the most well-organized kid, it's, is less well-organized than you know most of the adults, right? But a very well-organized kid will become a very well-organized adult. So essentially, their position inside the population will stay constant, relatively constant, even if the entire population, as they age, become better organized and more conscientious. So there's essentially all sorts of better designs to make those claims. Now, our study was mostly focused on privacy uh, risks, and it shows, essentially, that our political orientation and other psychological traits are displayed on our faces, so that that we uh, that one can very easily conclude. But it also suggests that you know maybe our faces suggest uh, influence what our political views are and and and, and other traits. Uh, so the bottom line is here: the fact that our faces are connected with our personality uh, is consistent with a theory or a hypothesis. It's consistent with a hypothesis that our personality is relatively stable or our political views are re re relatively stable, but it's not proving it, right? Uh, uh, there are much better studies to prove uh, that those phenomena are, are relatively stable. This most striking element of your research, Michal, on, on privacy is that we've always known that our Facebook likes could be harvested to build a kind of an, an aggregate portrait of who we are but you can always delete your facebook likes right no you can't delete your facebook likes you know once you like something it's uh, you can close your facebook account facebook will retain your data not to mention that there's a bunch of companies that in the meantime recorded your data also you may maybe avoid creating facebook likes by you know not liking anything on facebook but try to avoid purchasing things with your credit card or not using credit card at all in today's society. Try to avoid using email or try avoid using, you know, WhatsApp and, and or texting, you know, another modern, try to avoid using a phone that is sending your voice in a digital manner uh, over, you know, the, the cable and it's the voice that is being recorded. It's essentially impossible to live in a modern society, live a fulfilling and happy and efficient life without uh, using those technologies and essentially leaving digital footprint. And only the most privileged ones of us can do it. If you're a CEO of a big company, you know, maybe you can have assistants doing stuff for you and you kind of avoid leaving much footprint. But if you're a single mom working two jobs, you cannot afford going to a bank in person. You have to use online banking. You cannot afford sending people letters written in your hand with your hand. You have to, you know, be using those modern technologies. You cannot avoid using Google Maps to get to places, right? It's a sign of privilege. People saying, oh, I'm just going to leave Facebook and everything is going to be fine. Not to mention that it's also a bit silly, you know, because you left Facebook. You kind of punishing to you, but it's also punishing to others. I like having con I being connected with my friends. So when my friends leave all of those environments, that is a bit silly and punishing to me 
as well, and it's also meaningless because the data is still being recorded, not to mention that it's also this kind of escaping into privilege, right? When the solution to the privacy risks is not that wealthy, affluent, and able people just make sure that those risks don't apply to them and just, you know, the poor and underprivileged are suffering. The solution should be holistic, should essentially be applied to everyone. Yeah. Equal. I, I was, I, you, you've made my day worse. I was going to suggest that what you're flagging here, this extraordinary capacity for um, facial AI's capacity for facial recognition was sort of the cutting edge of privacy infringement. But actually, you're saying it's just it's part, 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 of, part of the general mess, which of course, which of course it is. Um, there is something extremely threatening, however, about the idea that all the CC, I live in the UK, where we have giantly high percentage of CCTV cameras for the population. Um, and, and the idea that all those CCTV cameras are not just tracking me, but also figuring out my sexuality, my political opinions, and the rest of it feels very threatening. But you're right to point out that um, it's just one of the very many digital footprints that we leave uh, around the world. And one that is relatively difficult to analyze, right? It's just facial visual data. It's just larger. You know, the, the, your, your picture, profile picture, is, has, you know, it's few megabytes. Whereas, you know, the record of all, every single thing you liked on Facebook throughout your life is, you know, probably, you know, few kilobytes, um, if that. Uh, so visual data is more difficult to capture, more difficult to process and so on. And by the way, again, people, people get freaked out by those studies showing that you can predict something from the face. But let's not forget, you can predict that and more and more accurately from your Facebook likes and your tweets and your history of credit card uh, purchases and uh, so on. So it's just one of many examples of insensitive data. One could essentially argue every, every kind of data we're leaving behind is uh, highly sensitive. In my earlier studies, I've shown that Facebook likes uh, are revealing of... Uh, intimate traits, Facebook likes that people usually think of as very innocent and superficial. You know, it's a like of this picture of a funny goat or a like of whatever, this funny status that my friend posted on Facebook. What can possibly learn from that? Well, your sexual orientation, your political views, your personality, your intelligence, what drugs you are taking, and even, you know, whether your parents were divorced whether when you were a kid or not. All of this is essentially clearly visible and predictable from uh, your digital footprints, even as innocent as Facebook likes. Essentially, the bottom line is that this data that we're leaving behind is just the tip of an iceberg. When you combine this data with modern predictive algorithms, you can extract so uh, much more information from it than just data carries itself. So you've spoken about um, this post-privacy world that many have, have mentioned, you've described us as already being in it. How do we manage it? Well, so first of all, I want to start with saying that I'm pretty uneasy about uh, the idea of privacy being taken away from us. This is why I became interested in privacy research and I, and I would call myself a privacy scholar. And my initial hope was that if I just put enough work and uh, others put enough work in studying privacy risks and developing privacy protecting technologies. And if we all just vote for right politicians, you know, that are, have our privacy uh, at heart, uh, then maybe we'll just be able to 
uh, stop uh, this trend of uh, our privacy being taken away from us. Now, unfortunately, the more I know about this issue, the more I study this issue, the more I observe what's happening around us, the more I realize that unfortunately, privacy is gone already and will be even more gone in the coming months and years. We are essentially already living in a post-privacy era where a motivated third party, be it your government or a government of another country, be it a corporation or even your neighbor with a little time and a little skill can essentially learn about you uh, way more than you think, can discover your uh, intimate traits, predict your future uh, behavior, including behaviors uh, and traits that you are even not uh, aware of, uh, you know, essentially such in the context of predicting people's personality or their intelligence from their digital footprints. You may have never measured your personality. You may have never measured your intelligence. Uh, you may be young enough not to think about what your political views are, and yet a uh, relatively simple algorithm will be able to look at your data, compare it with what it knows about other people, and make a very accurate prediction about uh, your traits, future behaviors, uh, and uh, so on. Now, having said that, uh, I should also say another thing, that the fact that Losing our privacy while being scary and carrying many negative uh, aspects also has quite a few advantages. Uh, taking away yours and my privacy also uh, takes it away from uh, criminals, corrupt politicians, uh, uh, human traffickers, uh, and uh, all sorts of uh, cor big corporations not paying their taxes, governments trying to hide stinky things uh, somewhere in the database. Now, uh, this more transparency uh, is going to have many advantages for individuals and societies. Now, realizing that whatever you write in your email or whatever you write in your private message to someone, uh, realizing that this might is essentially, it's not private anymore. That first of all, it's not private even originally, because if you're writing an email to someone, there's at least one other person that has access to this information and, by the way, can choose to share it, right? Uh, but now, if you also realize that there's also Facebook that looks at it and, and Google that looks at it and your government and the government of another country, suddenly uh, it will make you think twice uh, before you write something stupid or, 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 or ugly or unpleasant. And... This thinking twice will not only make you safer in the long term, because essentially just not going to be writing some things that just should not be written, but also may make you a slightly better person, a person that thinks twice before they write something stupid and possibly incriminating or embarrassing is just a better uh, person uh, in many ways, uh, I believe. Now, the fact that we're all losing our privacy at the same time, more or less, also means that certain taboo subjects will uh, go away, right? So, uh, uh, if we uh, cannot really uh, make sure that the world easily forgets what's on this picture from this crazy party when we're 21 or 22, uh, and now we're running for, you know, prime minister 40 years later, uh, it's much more likely that this picture will be dragged out from some, you know, depths of Facebook or Instagram or whatnot, but the same will apply to everyone else in the society and maybe we'll just stop obsessing so much 
with you know how many beers uh, someone drank when they were 22 or what did they smoke, right? Essentially, some of those taboo subjects that today are, you know, when you lose privacy of the fact that whatever you smoked weed as a as a teenager, you know, today a big problem. Uh, maybe 10 or 20, or maybe actually not that big anymore. And, and maybe in, in a few years from now, it will be much less of a problem. And in fact, it brings me to another uh, uh, thought here, which is that very often we treat privacy as a quick fix, as a band-aid to much deeper and serious problems. Let me give you following example. Uh, I very much appreciate the fact that my sexual orientation is private information, I have some control over this information simply because information about your sexual orientation can get you in big trouble in many places, right? But then the problem here is not the privacy itself. The problem here is the prejudice and bias, both in societies and in legal systems, that create situations in which we cannot safely share information about our political orientation, sexual orientation, religiosity, and other traits, right? And in fact, some people may argue that a world in which I can freely share information about my political orientation, I can freely share information about my religion, sexual orientation, and so on, without fearing repercussions, is a better world to, uh, to occupy. Now, uh, it also kind of shows how ridiculous uh, sometimes would become when we essentially say, well, if you're afraid of, uh, you know, persecution on political grounds, just keep your political views private. This is just an inhumane thing to say. It's essentially like telling, you know, people, uh, well, let me actually just bring it to, uh, to another example. Like we have no privacy of our gender, right? G our gender is visible immediately when you interact with someone. It can be heard in voice, uh, can be even read from names that we are having, right? And we know that sexism exists. No one would suggest, though, that the fix to sexism, the problem of sexism, is privacy of gender. No one would say, oh, you know, let's just recommend to women to hide their gender and, you know, the world will be equal for them. This is stupid and inhumane. And first of all, we should celebrate differences. We should be allowed to express ourselves in whatever gender way we wish, right? without having to worry that we are going to be now suffering from prejudice. And the same applies to other characteristics that we're kind of keeping private out of fear of persecution or prejudice. I'm hopeful that essentially as unfortunately our privacy is being taken away from us, we will treat it as an opportunity and will behave like uh, adults uh, about it, right? So, and the history actually gives us some examples. Uh, Harvey Milk was arguing that if you can afford coming out as gay, uh, you should do this. You will pay the price, you will pay with job opportunities, and uh, you will pay maybe by being excluded from certain communities, maybe uh, you will pay by your family excluding you. And in fact, Harvey Milk paid the highest price. He was murdered for, uh, because he came out. Now, thanks to those heroes, that followed his advice and risked and came out risking their lives often and paying the price. But they also paved the way for everyone else to follow. They paved the way uh, by removing the taboo subject, by proving to their neighbors and politicians and society as a whole that 
many people are. It's normal, great, wonderful people. And I hope that uh, people would see that we can do the same now. One could argue that if you can afford losing your privacy of your political orientation, religiosity, sexual orientation, maybe you should do this because there are people in other places, in other countries, in other neighborhoods that cannot afford uh, yet to lose their privacy. And you losing your privacy will help to pave the way and change the ways in which society is thinking, will remove the taboo subject and uh, remove the taboo, yes, and and then also change, reduce the pressure that is on, you know, those pioneers, those first people that are uh, losing their privacy. And we should also change the way in which we think about issues. One example is Western countries are selling arms and technology to uh, countries such as Saudi Arabia and then buying oil from them in return. And when voters tell their politicians, hey, you know, why would we uh, have interactions of this kind with a country which stones you to death when they find out that you are gay? This doesn't seem to be a right partner to have, you know, such a friendly trade relationship with, where the politicians would say, well, yes, that's kind of a bit distasteful, but you know what, if you're just gay and you're born in Saudi Arabia, just why don't you just stay quiet about this? Well, we know, unfortunately, that gay people, people um, um, that make choices not accepted in the society, have uh, no way of uh, keeping it uh, private, hiding it. And this is why there's no more time to left, no, sorry, no more time left to actually uh, take action and make sure that we are uh, making decisions and voting for politicians and choosing social and legal structures in which the rights of minor- minorities are uh, protected. Because those minorities uh, essentially have less and less opportunity to uh, to hide themselves behind privacy. Nihal, what a fantastic place to end. Um, exhortation to us all. Um, this has been fascinating, hugely instructive. I, we will link to um, many of your pieces of, of research um, in the in the show notes um, and to all the many people that you've discussed here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tori. Thanks for having me. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.